Thank you, team. And good morning. Am I on? My name is Justin Sitzma, and I'm on the pastoral staff here at Courtright. And it is an honor, as always, to read and learn from God's word with you this morning. We are continuing on in our series, working through 1 Corinthians, and we are now getting into some very specific practices of the early church. And last week, Pastor Alex talked about, some con- talked about contextualization in chapter 9, how we are called to become all things to all people so that we may wi- guide or win people toward the hope that we have in Christ. Today we get to explore one of those contextualizations uh, from the early church in Corinth, hair length and head coverings. You're like, yes. And yes, telling women what they should and shouldn't do with their hair is, in my view, the perfect Mother's Day sermon. (laughs) Thank you for understanding my slight playfulness there. (laughs) We planned this perfectly. But we'll soon find out that this is about so much more than hairstyles and head coverings. But rather, this is about how scripture shapes us, and it shapes our understanding of culture, and how culture shaped parts of scripture, and how culture today shapes how we interpret scripture today. It's good to acknowledge as we head into our scripture reading uh, that there are parts of this passage that will sound to our modern ears strange, illogical, perhaps even offensive, depending on your stance. And we just like to acknowledge that as we walk into this um, interesting passage that I don't really hear a lot of churches preaching on. So I decided I want that one. I don't know why I do this to myself but it was actually a pretty fun exercise. So let's pray together before we open God's word. Lord, would you open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, that we may hear with joy what you have to say to us today. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 11. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she, may, she might as well have her hair cut off. But, it, but if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, she, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image of the glory, image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority have over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women is not independent of man, nor is man independent of women. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of women. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. 
Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. So we're asking the big questions in life today. Are women obligated to have long hair? And are most Christian women around the world, even in this room, in sin because they're not wearing head coverings? Actually, just out of curiosity, did anyone grow up in something like maybe like a, a brethren church where you might have worn head coverings growing up? A few of you. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's, it's not common, but it's not uncommon in certain circles. And then there's the issue of men's hair. You know, what should we do if a man shows up to our church in long hair? Do we put him under church discipline? I'm waiting for a picture of... (laughs) If a man had long hair in, you know, another part of his life, is it still a disgrace to him? Should we double check to make sure he is properly repented of this clear biblical violation? So for those who don't know, that's um, Pastor Alex, and, and he's on vacation, so um, I, Allison and I found this picture and thought we'd use it. <laughs> but it, it's, on, it's on Facebook, so it's like fair game, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and to be fair as well, I did search through my own photo archives to try to find a photo of me when I was like 18 or 19 and had... L- long-ish, jet-black dyed hair with like the classic mid-2000s emo swoop. Um, If you know, you know. If you don't, don't worry about it. Um, But I did find a picture of me from when I was 15 and I had dreadlocks. And those, and those dreadlocks were actually, like, they were a lot longer before they got all knotted up, right? Because you got to start with a certain length and then it goes, you know, anyway. So that was me. Uh, I think I was a band. I, was, I played in a punk band, and that was, I think, like a promo shot that we all did little like headshots, and that was mine in 2001. Good times. <laughs> so, um, was my hair too long there? At what point is too long? Is long too long? For women, how short is too short? Didn't Jesus have long hair, at least according to the Warner Salmon painting that's in like every church from the 1950s depicting Jesus as a long-haired white European dude? What about the Nazarites like Samson in the Hebrew Bible or men like John the Baptist with famously like wild long hair? What about today? Women with a hair type that looks better shorter. Women with alopecia, which that's come in the limelight recently and with the Oscar uh, situation. Uh, if you don't know, Google it. But um, women, what about women who have undergone chemotherapy? Women who have lost hair for other reasons? Any other practical or fashionable reason why women might have short hair? Is it true that, as Paul says, that nature teaches us that men, have long, men having long hair is a disgrace? Then what do we do with the king of the beasts, the lion, with his glorious, beautiful mane versus his counterpart, the short-haired lioness? 
what I want to do here, what I'm trying to do is just go a little deeper into the assumptions we make when we go into Scripture. And, you know, how do we know? Because I think that we have all but kind of said, no, that was for then. That was for then. That doesn't matter now. But how do we know that what we're reading is meant to be read at face value? How do we know um, when it's a context-specific mandate? It would seem here that Paul is prescribing, and even in the end of verse 16, he's kind of like, this is for all the churches. Like, he's kind of prescribing something here. He's appealing to reason, and he's appealing to other parts of Scripture in an effort to say, women, wear head coverings, don't cut your hair. And he's saying to men, men, don't wear head coverings, don't, or, and cut your, don't keep your hair short, he's saying. So how do Christians avoid accusations of picking and choosing which Scripture they follow or don't follow? And I'm asking a lot of questions here, not because I don't have some answers. I I hope I do have some answers, but I just want to give us a a sense of the challenges, interpretive challenges that we all have to face for me as a a leader in, in the church and for all of us, no matter how long we've been reading the Bible for, we have and face these challenges. I spent hours studying this passage, and I still have a lot of questions. I compiled information from like a bunch of different commentaries and several online resources, and I put them all in one big Word document where I could kind of just have them all ready with me. It was about 30,000 words just on these 16 verses alone, and that's not even scratching the surface on the amount of material about these verses that exist. It's complicated, yes? So what is Paul actually saying? I hope, my hope and prayer for us is that when we dig deeper, we'll start to see that there's actually something really beautiful and good that Paul is getting at here. So we're going to ask that question. What is Paul saying? And what wisdom can we glean for today? But we'll deal with the first part first. So very broadly, uh, in the words of uh, Church of Scotland minister William Barclay, he says that the specifics of this passage have a purely local and temporary significance. So that means the specifics of what Paul is prescribing do not apply to us in the 21st century, that this was a local concern. Perfect. Sermon done. <laughs> that is the overwhelming consensus, though. That is why, in general, we leave men alone, including poor Pastor Alex, who hopefully none of you write him emails. Um, But um, that's why we leave men alone generally about their hairstyle, except for my dreads. They were awful. Um, (laughs) And increasingly, but maybe perhaps a little less so, women are also left alone regarding their hair choices as well. It's also why there are very few strands of Christianity that still practice head coverings. And even then, in verse 15, it's a bit Interesting, Paul seems to imply that long hair itself is a covering of sorts. He says, for long hair is given to her as a covering. There doesn't seem to be a consensus regarding women wearing veils in the Roman Empire in the first century. Uh, most depictions of Roman women did not wear, did not have veils or coverings. For Jewish converts, that was a different story. It would have been commonplace for a Jewish woman to wear head coverings in public. It was a sign of honor and dignity, whereas not wearing one was a sign of humiliation. Regardless of whether this is regarding a physical covering or not, um, hairstyles and coverings were an issue. 
It's possible that women felt that in Christ, they had this newfound freedom, that they could just rid themselves of all the practices that were existent before, and they could just do as they wished. It's possible that Paul here was sticking close to his Jewish roots. It really comes down to the honor-shame, hierarchical, and patriarchal culture of the ancient Near East. Paul says this in verse 3. He says, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of, of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Paul is speaking simply and accurately about the reality of things in the first century. There have been literal books written about one of the words for the word head here, which is kafale. It's the Greek word kafale, which most commonly means head, your physical head. Its use here is more difficult than simply inferring kind of our modern understanding of, oh, well, they're the head of an organization. They're the head, uh, you know, the CEO, or they're the head of a household. So we need to be careful to not read it simply as the man is the authority over women. That use of the word kefale is not really seen in the first century. The other primary understanding of that word that a lot of translators use is the word source. Is in like, you know, the source of life, the source of a river, um, that kind of thing. There are logical difficulties, though, no matter what translation you choose. Because it says the head of every man is Christ. That makes sense. But is Christ not also the head of all women? Yes, Christ, Christ is the head of women. And Paul basically says that later on in the passage. In fact, he almost seems to kind of nullify what he's saying here a little later on in a few verses. We're not going to solve all this today. That's not my goal. Um, it's an interesting rabbit hole, and if you're interested in chatting more about that, I'm always game. Um, but I had to, to self-edit a lot here, because otherwise it just goes into like you know, academia mode. But I believe that at its heart, this is an honor-shame patriarchal culture, and one person's actions reflect well or reflect poorly on other people. So for instance, in the ancient world, Women did not have honor themselves. We might say that's unfair, but that's just the way it was. Women did not have honor unto themselves. Their honor was always attached to a male relative, whether a husband or if they were unmarried, someone else. So if a woman were dressed in a dishonorable manner at the worship gathering, it might reflect poorly on her husband or another male relative. If the husband dresses or acts in a dishonorable manner, it reflects poorly on Christ and Christ's followers. In the ancient world, one of the ways women and men dishonor one another and thus dishonor God was by wearing hairstyles that were distracting or culturally insensitive. Men in the Roman Empire wore their hair short. Women in the Roman Empire wore their hair long. Women who wore their hair differently or shorter were presumed to be adulteresses or possibly cultic prostitutes. Uh, men who wore their hair long or wore a covering may have been presumed to have been part of a Roman pagan cult. So there's a lot of interesting things that you know, would, would be implied if you weren't kind of following the, the norm here. There seems inherent in all of this concern for how the church in Corinth was viewed among the other people in Corinth. In fact, one of the more confusing bits about this passage is where Paul blurts out the following statement. He says, It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Oh, right. 
The angels, right. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Paul, I'm tracking. No, I'm not. I, it, I, I took a long time to kind of work on this because it, it was challenging. So the Greek word for angels is the same word for messengers, which based on context could mean a heavenly messenger. It could also mean a human messenger. I'm not a Greek scholar, but from everything I've read, angels as a translation choice feels a little bit out of context. This is just me personally saying this. I am not saying this definitively. Um, I want to approach this with humility. Because he just kind of drops it in the middle of nowhere. He's like, you know, the angels. <laughs> it makes more sense, based on context, based on Paul's concern about the church's reputation, that it is referencing messengers sent to observe the church gathering to make sure that they were acting in an, in an acceptable and societally appropriate way, because the church was under scrutiny at this point, right? Now, that could mean a heavenly messenger. It could. We have plenty of other passages that make clear that angels are very real. But here, in my view, and this is my view, a human messenger contextually makes a bit more sense. It's also interesting the way Paul seems to be elevating the freedom of women in verse 10 while giving caution about the overuse of that freedom. He says, women should have authority over their own body, but to use that power and authority to honor those around you. Uh, I'm really indebted to the work uh, and research of, there's an Australian theologian, her name is Marg Mausko, and she summarized things this way. She says, Paul did not want the Corinthian men and women who were praying and prophesying to wear hairstyles that were sexually or morally confusing. Instead, he wanted them to, be, to conform to established customs in that time and place so that they would not have a bad reputation in the broader community. Paul often wanted to appear respectful and courteously to the culture. We see that riddled throughout Acts. We see that riddled throughout his other letters. To that end, men dressing like Roman men and women dressing like Roman women was the norm. And while we modern readers can easily look at this passage with confusion, curiosity, or even frustration, there's actually something very elevating for women happening here. Firstly, the women were actually in the worship gathering. Um, for Jewish converts to Christianity, this would have been a novel, beautiful concept that in Jewish temple worship, men and women were completely segregated and, complete, and completely separate from one another and they were not permitted to partake in the worship service. But here, women are not only worshiping together alongside the men, it says they are praying and prophesying among one another. So we have women speaking from authority from the Lord in church right here in the scriptures. This is my absolute favorite passage when discussing the whole women in church leadership conversation because we get so distracted here by like the head coverings and hair length and headship that we forget to see that women are participating in the full life of the church from the very beginning, amen? Paul also makes it very clear that his heart here is that men and women in the church would see each other as interdependent. We rely on one another. And that ultimately, we are all under the authority of God. It says this, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not dependent independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. 
So at several points, Paul seems to be alluding back to the creation narrative where Eve is derived from one of Adam's ribs, which among certain sects of Judaism became a point of pride among them, where they would kind of provide this as evidence or proof that uh, uh, women are insubordinate and inferior. But again, Paul elevates women and reminds his readers, woman came from man, yes, but also all men are born of women. So we are all ultimately dependent on one another, and we all ultimately sit under the authority of God. So while Paul seems concerned about men and women having distinctness, he reminds them that they're all ultimately one in Christ. So what do we do with this? What wisdom should we glean from this for today? It's interesting to know, like I had a lot of fun looking at the, the history and context. It was cool to learn, and I hope it was interesting for you. But what do we do with this? As I said earlier, there's very few sermons I found where pastors are preaching from this beyond a superficial level. And so uh, this was a bit of a challenging exercise, but I hope that we can glean some, some wisdom from this. So firstly, consider how culture has changed and how we adapt or maybe how we don't adapt. This is where the 21st century church um, has frequently missed the mark by doing one of two things. They decide that they're going to be on the absolute bleeding edge of everything, every trend, to the point where it's frankly kind of cringy. Or by being totally culturally irrelevant to the world and possibly even to the congregation. Churches don't need to be trend chasers but they must embody the gospel into the culture in a meaningful way, amen? And when I say embody, I use that word intentionally because I believe embodying involves all of us, our speech, our life, our actions, all of it. Paul was committed to seeing the church in Corinth find that balance between being totally centered on this radical community of faith, centered around the resurrected Christ, but also a church that didn't draw attention to itself in inappropriate or wrong ways. They, in some sense, were very distinct from culture. They were, in other senses, totally normal. Being a Christian entails doing and believing some stuff that our culture might find bizarre. That if, you know, I'm not, maybe you're here and you are not a follower of Jesus, and you're like, they just sing together. It's weird, you know, like they just like, you know, do like repeat after the pastor when he says certain things, like that's weird. You know, like there are certain customs that are admittedly bizarre to an outsider. But Paul's saying, don't let, you know, don't let some of these other reasons be the reasons why they think you're weird. (laughs) So suppose for a moment, this is a bit of a thought experiment. Suppose for a moment that God called you to join a church planting team in Saudi Arabia. Some of you are like, sign me up, I'm in. Now, let's just set aside for the moment that Christianity is illegal. Um, How do you shape the worshiping life of that church? Do you get a drum set, guitars, keyboards, send your arena decked out uh, with, send them all to your arena decked out with smoke machines and lasers and that kind of stuff? Do you sing the latest and hottest contemporary Christian worship songs? Do you preach in English? Do you use classic Western rhetoric uh, when trying to share the gospel with the locals? 
Or maybe you go in a totally different direction. Maybe you set up a Gothic-style cathedral like Notre Dame with a pipe organ, an ornate craftsmanship, and centuries-old hymns written by white, dead European dudes, and and a classic Anglo-Catholic liturgy. And some of you are like, I I like the sounds of that, you know? (laughs) And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But in Saudi Arabia, it might be a little weird, right? The answer is obviously no to all of that. That would be totally absurd, and the locals would be deeply and profoundly confused. And yet, at times, our witness to the world around us can be just as perplexing as doing something like that. Yes, we should be students of Scripture and constantly growing in faith, but we also must be students of the culture around us, learning and growing. I recognize that the older we get, this is harder to do. We get set in our ways. I'm, I'm only 36 later this month, and I feel myself at times getting set in my ways. <laughs> and I can assume that my ways are the ways that should be the way that churches should function. We stop getting curious about the world around us. We stop seeking the Holy Spirit's wisdom on what parts of our world to accept and receive and what parts ought to be rejected. And we assume a posture of arrogance rather than a posture of humility. How can we fight against that? How can we, how can we try and avoid that sort of thinking? It seems like Paul envisioned the church to be a place that both mirrored and differentiated from culture in the right ways. It's a tough balance. It needs lots of prayer, lots of consideration. Next, consider how we display honor to one another as the body of Christ. This seems to be a theme that pops up a lot for me. I think it's important for for me. I think it's important for the broader church, but I especially think it's important for courtrights. How we honor one another internally really matters. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he says, In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This really mattered in first century Corinth. Even if we can't possibly know all of the nuance of the hairstyling and hair coverings and dress and all that stuff, at a minimum, we can know that at its heart, Paul wanted God's people to honor and respect one another with both their words and their actions. That might even include how we dress. I have a couple, it's wedding season, I have a couple weddings that I'm officiating over the next few months. I want you to imagine that everyone is decked out in their beautiful suits and ties and dresses, and I show up to officiate the wedding in um, sweatpants and a stained t-shirt. Would that be sinful? Maybe not sinful, but would that be dishonoring? Super dishonoring, absolutely. What about the reverse of that? Imagine you're in a very casual setting, perhaps even a setting where the, the poor and the marginalized are forefront among you. And I showed up to preach in that context wearing a very expensive suit and whatever else. Would that be honoring? No, it would not be honoring. Context matters. In fact, Paul often uses this word modesty in the New Testament. And every time Paul mentions modesty, it's in the context of flaunting wealth and jewelry. Pretty interesting. 
This sort of decorum can show up in many places in our everyday world. So this is not without its basis in the 21st century. Uh, Lindsay and I, we celebrated 13 years of marriage on Monday. Thank you. <laughs> um, and we got free tickets to a Blue Jays game. And we both love the Jays, so it's not just, it wasn't just me. Um, right, Lindsay? Thank you. Just want, I just want confirmation. In fact, she was the one that initially pitched the idea. So um, anyway. <laughs> And what happens at the beginning of every sporting event? They sing the national anthem. They ask you to stand if you are able and to remove your hat. That's right. I could argue that removing a hat doesn't technically signal respect. For me as a millennial, it, those sorts of like, kind of things just don't matter. I know that some of you that are maybe a generation or two beyond me, you're like, oh, I'm, really, I'm gonna write Justin an email. But for someone in, in my age category, it, respect doesn't get conferred by whether you are or are not wearing a hat. But for other people, it does. And so in this instance, it is an appropriate thing to do. When you are at the Blue Jays game, you do as the Blue, Jay, Blue Jays fans do. I removed my hat. That was the honoring thing to do. There are so many ways to honor one another, and they go far beyond the superficial. Dress becomes a bit of an outward sign of an inward posture. When we honor one another, it looks a little bit more like young people learning from older folks. It means older folks learning from young people. And interestingly enough, we have an opportunity next week. We're going to hear from three of our uh, young people here at Courtrights, and they're going to be sharing some testimonies. And it's going to be a wonderful thing for all of us to learn from them. Serving one another, learning from one another, that phrase one another happens 100 times in the New Testament. Things like love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, care for one another, be patient with one another, encourage one another, submit to one another. The list goes on and on and on. How can you do that today? How can you intentionally seek to do this for those in our church community? What is God, who is God calling you to honor? Thirdly, consider how we approach challenging passages in Scripture. This is a bit more of like a meta conversation, meaning it's about how we think about Scripture as, as a whole in light of sometimes notoriously challenging passages to interpret. I know for me, I had to really hold lightly to my interpretation and my presumptions as I went into this week. I had to go in with an open mind and confess before the Holy Spirit that there are parts that I was like, God, I just don't get this. Holy Spirit, I need your wisdom. And we all need to do that when we approach Scripture, yes? And even after hours of study, I still don't get it all. And that's going to be okay. <laughs> what I am continuing to learn is how important it is to recognize our own biases as we, that we bring to Scripture. If you're someone who affirms hierarchy and gender in marriage, you're going to take that presupposition into this text. If you're someone who, like me, affirms the equality of women, you're going to read this passage and presume that it must be saying something else or there's context we may be missing. And that's, like, that's probably true for a lot of places, but it might not be true in other instances. So we just have to check ourselves. We need to pray. We need to ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom because we all do this in our own ways. So the best thing we can do is approach challenging passes with, passages with humility, with curiosity, and with a spirit of learning. And we do this best not by ourselves, but we do this best in community with one another. 
which might mean learning together, learning from teachers and scholars from the broader church who may or sometimes often disagree on the finer points. We have so many resources at our fingertips to learn and grow, but we do it best when we do it together. Lastly, as we wrap up, consider how the cross and the empty tomb of Christ unify us. Paul's heart was to see the church in Corinth unified, and that is Christ's heart as well. Central to this unity is what we remembered and celebrated just a few short weeks ago, the cross of Christ and the risen Christ. This is the driving force behind Paul's entire letter, and it's important to see even uh, to see even challenging and confusing passages in this light, that he doesn't want distractions, even important or worthy distractions, to get in the way of us experiencing the true unity that the resurrection brings. The risen Christ binds us. In his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, Jesus shows us how to be in community with one another, how to honor one another, how to model mutuality and interdependence to the world, and how to be a new kind of community committed to the centrality of the risen Christ. This is a challenging thing, but it is a good and beautiful thing. A few moments ago, I read from that that, uh, chapter in uh, Philippians chapter 2, and I want to just read the uh, full context of that just as we close out our time together. I think it's really critical for us as we think about this and how to pastorally apply some of this. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.